the passage we're going to look at today I thought would be best looked at in the context of the whole chapter of Mark 11. We're going to focus on verses 12 through 19 today, but it's helpful to see it in the full context of the chapter, I think, because it's a weird passage. I don't know if you studied this fig tree cursing or not, but at first especially, it's strange. Let's read again verses 12 through 14. On the following day, this picks up where we left off last Sunday after he's entered Jerusalem as the Savior King, and then he looks around at the temple and he goes and he retires for the evening. It's now the next day. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Have you ever gotten up in the morning, and that particular morning, a bowl of cereal just sounds like the perfect breakfast? And so you get your cereal all set, and you cut up your fruit and put it in there, and you get your spoon, and you've got your cup of coffee, and you sit down, maybe you've got your newspaper there, and you grab the milk, and there's just a tiny little splash in it, and you can't have your cereal. Now, do you throw a fit and throw the milk across the room and say, may no one ever drink milk in this house again? No, you don't throw a fit when some food that you were excited about doesn't turn out. Now, do you really think that's what Jesus is doing here? We know he's hungry. Okay, and he saw a fig tree, and it was was leafy, which from, I don't know anything about fig trees other than what I've read in preparation for this sermon, but if there's leaves, there should be figs. And he goes to look for figs, and there are none. So he curses the fig tree. Is he just throwing a fit? Is he just hungry and grumpy? Of course not. Of course not. If we're mature enough to handle not milk for cereal, he's mature enough to handle no figs this morning. So there's something else behind this. The problem for us is that he doesn't explain himself. Okay, we see this happen here, and we see it happen in the Gospel of Matthew, and he doesn't explain why he did this. He does explain how, a little bit later on in the chapter, like we read, but he doesn't explain why. And so we're left with this story. But it is here, it's in God's Word, and God's Holy Spirit-inspired Word, so it's important. And so we do need to meditate on it and think about it. All Scripture is profitable. It's all God-breathed. So why is this here? And why did he do this to this fig tree? May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So we don't have an explanation, but we do have a pattern. And that's why I wanted to read the whole chapter. So the pattern, first passage has to do with him entering the temple. Looks around, goes home. The next passage has to do with the fig tree. No fruit, so he curses it. The next passage has to do with the temple again. He enters the temple And he gets angry in the temple and responds to what he sees going on in there. Then the next passage has to do with the fig tree again. And he explains to the disciples what happened with the fig tree, but not why. And the next passage is the temple again. He goes back in and talks to the uh, religious leaders about his authority. So Mark weaves this together, temple and fig tree, together into this one chapter. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about 
how the Gospels are a unique genre. They're not biographies in the sense that we tend to think biographies. The primary purpose of the Gospels is not biographical. Okay, that's one reason when you read the account in Matthew and compare it to the account in Mark, they're a little different in the terms of how they're laid out. In Matthew, the temple part comes first where he kicks everybody out that's um, being greedy and doing things they're not supposed to do. And then the fig tree part where he curses it and then he immediately explains it. It's not interspersed like this. The reason is because they're not trying to lay out a strictly biographical history of Jesus for academic purposes. The Gospels are theological in nature. So each of the four Gospels is looking at Jesus from a different angle and holding him out as the Savior King, the long-awaited Messiah. So these things really did happen, but their priority wasn't laying them out chronologically so much as presenting them to show Jesus as clearly as they could as the Savior King. So I say all that to say Mark did this on purpose under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So I think there's something to this pattern. I think that there is something to be gained from this passage. Most of the people that I've read this week trying to confirm my thinking on this seem to agree that the fig tree here must in some way represent Israel. And it must in some way have to do with what they were doing in the temple. So let's think about the temple for a minute. The temple was the center of worship for Israel. It was the center of their relationship with God. So if you think back in the Old Testament... God calls forth a special people for himself, and these would be his people. He would be their God, and they would be in relationship with one another. And then the temple became the centerpiece of that relationship where these people would come to God with sacrifices for their sins. God would respond with forgiveness and with revelation and with answers to prayers, and there they would commune together. And this is an extremely profound and sacred and important thing. Now, before we move on into the passage, just right here, we see something about God. He wants a relationship with his people. He doesn't just want robotic obedience from people who could care less about him. He wants a humble, dependent relationship with his people. Okay, he always has, and that remains today the case. And so if we zoom forward, when he enters the temple, let's read verses 15 through 19. After this with the fig tree, he does it, the disciples hear it, he does it in front of them. In verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? This comes from Isaiah chapter 56. I'd like to read it to you. 
Isaiah 56. The prophet Isaiah, under inspiration from God as a prophet, is talking about how foreigners will be welcomed into the worship of God. And so if we'll start reading in Isaiah 56. We'll read verses 6 and 7. He says, And foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So Jesus is pointing back to this passage in Isaiah saying, this place, this temple, this worship of God isn't meant to look like what I'm seeing here. It's meant to look like God gathering a people, and not even just the Jews, but a people from all nations who will minister, who will love me, who will serve me, who will hold my Sabbath, hold fast to me, and who will joyfully come to me in prayer. That's the fruit that Jesus would have expected to have seen in the temple. But when he entered the temple, just like the fig tree, it was barren of that fruit. He didn't see ministry. He didn't see love for God. He didn't see service to God. He didn't see people holding fast to God. He didn't see people joyfully communing with God in prayer. He didn't see communion with God. He saw commerce. Instead of this fruit that was supposed to grow in the tree of Israel, he saw people robbing each other, using the opportunity for financial gain. You remember, this is at Passover, so thousands of people were pouring into Jerusalem. It's a great business opportunity if you want to sell people animals that they can use for sacrifices. And if you want to take advantage of people exchanging money and currency, this is a great opportunity. And so the temple apparently had become a hotbed of greed and people trying to make a fast buck on people who were traveling in supposedly to worship God. And so Jesus, who is so meek and so gentle, elsewhere in Isaiah it says he wouldn't even, even bruise a, a tender reed. Jesus starts kicking everybody out, overturning tables, and putting an abrupt stop to this. Clearly, he feels very strongly about this. God means for his people to be in humble, dependent relationship with him. And it's very easy for our religious busyness to choke out that fruit. In Hebrews, we learn that the temple was just a shadow of the communion that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16, I'll read to you. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you? Through Jesus Christ, as we've talked about so many times before, we don't just have our sins forgiven. We have our sins forgiven and all that removed so that we can be in a humble, dependent relationship with God himself. We get to commune with God himself. 
we get to be in relationship with God himself. You get to be in relationship with God himself, the God of the universe. He doesn't just have to be an idea. He's not just a philosophy. He is the being around which all of reality orbits. And you, through Jesus Christ, get to be in humble, dependent relationship with him. If it was important to Jesus here, before the cross, before he opened up this way through the cross for us, how much more important is it now that we bear this fruit of real, prayerful relationship with God? Listen to a familiar passage. This is John 15. Jesus taught, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. For... By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And he goes on. But this fruitfulness is the expectation. As Jesus saw a fig tree with leaves from a distance, he expected fruit to be there. But there wasn't. This active active temple hustling and bustling with activity, he would have expected to see this fruit of humble, dependent relationship with God in prayer represented by all the nations, but there wasn't. Like the barren fig tree, so the Israelites' worship was barren. So we have to ask ourselves as we approach this passage, does our religious activity outweigh our real relationship with God? Do our leaves outweigh our fruit? Does the appearance of our relationship with God match the reality in our hearts of our relationship with God? Sometimes people misunderstand Christianity altogether and they think that Christianity is a program of religious and moral self-improvement. And that we get on a regiment and a discipline of religious activity, and thereby we improve ourselves. But it's not. It's about being brought into a real relationship with God. And it's so, so easy for that relationship to dry up from neglect, for us to stop abiding in Christ, letting his words abide in us, and to just get busy with religious activity. You know, the priests and the scribes here who in verse 18 began to seek a way to destroy Jesus because of their fear, because their, their reign was being upturned here and the people were listening to Jesus. 
they can out-religious you any day of the week. I mean, they were pros at religious devotion. They were more passionate about traditions and rules and practices than all of us put together, I would imagine. But they completely missed relationship with God through his grace and mercy. Religious activity is not a virtue in of itself. It can be good if in service to a real relationship with God, or it can be extremely diseased and poisonous to your soul if it is just an effort for you to improve yourself apart from relationship with God. You being here right now can either be really, really good for you or really, really dangerous for you. If it's leading you into closer intimacy with God, then it's really, really good for you. If it's leading you into any kind of self-righteous feelings of superiority over those who didn't come this morning, then it's extremely dangerous to your soul. And I've always believed that every Sunday both things are happening. Some are getting softer toward God and some are getting harder toward God. The Word accomplishes something. And it's one of those two. I remember listening to a lot of sermons about prayer a few years ago because I was going to be preaching about prayer. And I was listening to a lot of sermons and I was amazed how nearly every one of them began with the pastor saying, we're going to talk about prayer but I don't want you to feel guilty because nobody's prayer life is what it should be. And that's our first instinct is to feel guilty because I know I should be praying more. I know I don't pray like I ought to pray. And I, you know, I agree with that. I, I don't think you should feel guilty about not praying enough. But it was interesting how it was every sermon they made that point. And they made that point because I think it is true that when we just isolate our relationship with God just to that one factor, prayer, is probably the most accurate gauge of our humble dependence upon him in relationship. It might be the most accurate gauge of where our hearts really are. Maybe more than the Jesus fish on the back of the car and the 91.9 in the preset on the radio is our prayer life. Maybe even more than the church attendance. Maybe even more than Bible reading. Because I think the chief uh, priests and the scribes knew the Bible really well. So we need to ask ourselves, how, how are things with our hearts? How is our relationship with God through Jesus Christ? In my quiet times this week, I've been... One of my readings has been in Luke, and he's in that section talking with the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, and and he says to them at one point, I can't remember exactly what chapter or verse, but it has stood out to me. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God sees the heart. And what is exalted among men is an abomination to God. And that struck me really hard because of all of us in this room, I am probably at the most danger here because I get up and much of my Christianity is done publicly and it is very easy to pretend. It is all too easy to pretend. 
And so I've been struck this week. Is my love for God genuine? Am I really dependent upon him? Have I just gotten good at the facial expressions in prayer that make it look like I'm really dependent upon him? Have I just gotten good at the body language in conversation that makes it look like I'm genuinely concerned for people? But in the back of my mind, am I really mentally checking my watch? Because what you see is this. Hand gestures, facial expressions, and you hear my voice. What God sees is my heart. And in the end, that's what he'll judge me by. But the same danger exists for all of us. Let's not go through the motions. Let's not just be engaged with religious stuff. What's offered to us is deeper than that. Real forgiveness from our real sins. The ones you know about and the person beside you in the pew maybe doesn't. God does know. He loves you. Through Jesus Christ, he offers mercy and forgiveness to you so you can be forgiven and cleansed and brought into real relationship with him. Where you can really live each day in humble, prayerful dependence upon him. Where when we come together, we can really connect with each other on that level. Pray for each other, with each other on that level. How is your relationship with God? How is your heart? God knows. Do you know? Have you thought about it? Because I know you're busy. And I'm sure this last week flew by for you just as quickly as mine did for me. It's a great opportunity to slow everything down and ask ourselves the very most important questions. God is gathering a people from all nations who will, through Jesus Christ, enter into humble, dependent relationship with him together. This is the fruit that he expects among his people. May we be a fruitful people. Let's pray. Father, I feel like so much has been left behind in this passage that needs to be meditated on and responded to. And I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and draw us back to this passage as individuals and families and house-to-house groups this week and let it be fruitful for us. But right now, my main burden, and I, I pray for myself and for your people here, that you would expose the reality of our hearts to us. Or protect us from hypocrisy, protect us from pretense, protect us from religious obligation and activity that is barren of a fruitful relationship with you. May we not just be leafy people, but may we be fruitful people people that bring you great honor, people who are in a humble, dependent relationship with you, prayerful people. Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, please help us here. Amen.